Speaking of Father's Day, all those who have children, you know that children have lots of emotions. Lots of emotions. Have you ever been in a room with a child having a temper tantrum? Yeah, some of you, like, I have, a, like, a husband that has a temper tantrum. <laughs> like, um, but kids have a way of, like, they're just raw. Like, there's no filter when they're upset. There it comes. Um, and they just have a way of exploding with lots of emotion. And when you have many of them, it's like a whirlwind of emotion all the time. We're having a therapy session right now. Um, me and you. Uh, maybe this was my experience. Like today, um, kids have a way of just expressing emotion. But as adults, we have a way of just like, like, like tapping that and putting that, like just, you know, pushing that down and we don't let it come out. But you know what happens? Eventually it's going to come out at some point because we all have emotions. We all feel deeply at some point about something. And we need to just, often we just have to express it. But here's the thing when it comes to God. For some reason... For most of my time working uh, with people as it relates to, you know, finding God, living with God, there's this idea that all that emotion that we have from like little kids all the way up to being an adult, you're not allowed to take that to God. You're just not. God needs your prayers to be prim and proper. They need to be formal. They need to, they need to just be set up just the right way. You need to be just really pure and really holy. Like, you better not take any bad language to Him. You just, it better be perfect. And when you get that, you can pray. Where do we get that from? I'm going to tell you where you don't get it from. The Bible. That's where you don't get it from. Today we're going to be studying, we're on this journey... Uh, through the book of Psalms. At some point here soon, we'll take a break. We'll jump into the Gospel of Luke. But today we're stepping into Psalm 6. And it's the first psalm uh, that carries the amount of emotion that I think all of us carry when we hit moments of suffering and struggle. It's a prayer that teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot about how we might pray. It teaches us a lot about God. And it teaches us a lot about ourselves. So we'll step in. Psalm 6, Psalm 6, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 6. We're going to read this psalm all the way through, and then we'll unpack it. Psalm 6, I'm reading out of the New International Version, Psalm 6. It is considered a psalm of David, and today we're going to go with that. There's no reason in, uh, to, to question that on this psalm, um, although that subtitle is not inspired. It came in hit, uh, centuries later, but uh, the tradition is this is a psalm of King David. Verse 1, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name who praises you from the grave. I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping, drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My, they fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. 
This is a prayer full of emotion. It's the most emotion we've seen up to this point in the book of Psalms. This psalm right here, it comes from a place of deep suffering. It comes from a place of deep agony. Now here's the thing what we don't know. If we don't know what is the cause of the suffering. We just don't know. And so that's debated. What in the world is causing this amount of suffering to bring this kind of emotion to God? This is no sugar-coated prayer. What is causing the suffering? Historically, historically, uh, there's been this understanding that this is actually being caused by David's sin. David's own sin. Now, we're going to go back in history for a moment. Let's pick up that very famous Reformation leader, John Calvin, from the 1500s. Here's what he had to say about Psalm 6. David, being afflicted by the hand of God, acknowledges that he had provoked the divine wrath by his sins. And therefore, in order to obtain relief, he prays for forgiveness. Then we'll just speed up 300 years to that famous preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s. Here's what Spurgeon has to say about Psalm 6. Psalm 6's language well becomes the lip of a pennant. For it expresses at once the sorrow, the humiliation, and the hatred of sin, which are the unfailing marks of the contrite spirit when it turns to God. Both these guys, along with a lot of other commentators, believe that it is David's sin that has brought him to this place of great suffering. The problem with that understanding, at least in the way Calvin and Spurgeon and others understand it, is the one thing missing from Psalm 6 is the very thing they say is actually the cause of the suffering. And that is sin. The word sin is nowhere in Psalm 6. And so the idea that this would be the cause of the great suffering uh, is a question mark. Because nowhere does David actually say that sin is the cause. But, but, but what scholars will point to is that this psalm, Psalm 6, falls in line with other psalms that have been uh, labeled penitential. Penitential being those psalms of confession. Those psalms where the psalmist will cry out for forgiveness because of great sin. Those are called penitential prayers. Why don't you take a look at the, another one of these psalms that's uh, labeled a penitential psalm. Look at Psalm 38 and notice the connection between Psalm 6 and Psalm 38 actually starts the same way, this psalm of David. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. He goes on here, verse 2, we'll go through verse 8. Your arrows have pierced me. Your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. This is a deeply emotional prayer. A prayer of coming from a place of deep pain and and at least three times right there in the same verses, it is very clear that this suffering is because of sin. It is David's own sin that has brought him to this place of great suffering, so much so that literally his body hurts. 
His body hurts because of his sin. Then in Psalm 32, we have another penitential psalm. So we'll just go a few psalms back. So we start there at 38. We'll go back into Psalm 32. Just look at these few verses here. David writes this, another psalm of David. When I keep silent, my bones wasted away, and through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. His deep suffering is definitely about definitely about his sin. It's his transgression. And so he comes confessing, acknowledging the, 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 the pain I am experiencing is because of my sin. It's right there, right there in the psalm. And so there is some connection here. There's some connection here that because this is the way David will pray in Psalm 6, well, this is the, this is the same thing um, happening. Psalm 38, sorry, I'm going to come back. I got to, that's a lot of emotion. That was a lot of emotion. I planted him here for the illustration. Um, so there is, there is here deep emotion in Psalm 38, 32. It's because of sin. Same language used in Psalm 6. So many think it also is sin causing the pain. And we know sin causes pain. You go give all your money, you're going to have some pain. You go try to have as many affairs as you want. You go do whatever you want with your body. Although you're in covenant with this person, you go and you just go sleep with whoever you want. I guarantee you there will be pain. It's just, it's coming. It will come. You can't rip things apart and it not hurts. You can say whatever you want at work. You can let your anger just spew forth. I guarantee you there will be some pain. It is coming. Sin will always bring pain. That's just the way, that's the order of this world. You drive recklessly, at some point, there will be pain. So this is, a, this is a principle that has been broken into the universe. You rebel against the order God has set up, at some point, you will hit reality. That's just the way it is. This isn't just some super spiritual principle. Don't let's be very careful not to make this some metaphysical uh, description of some abstract reality. We're just dealing with the way things really work in ordinary life. You rebel against the order of the world, the world uh, that God has set up. There will be pain. There will just be pain. Okay. But when you come into contact with with reality. Particularly when God confronts you with that sin, it usually will drive you to sorrow. That's the way at least it should work. It should work. Why do we punish our teenagers? To bring them to a point of pain, to bring them to sorrow, to lead them to repentance. That's the way this is supposed to work. Interestingly, that's the way this is working for David. In Psalm 38 and 32, what's he doing? He is... He is confessing his sin. Literally, the pain has gotten down into his bones. And what does he do? He confesses that sin. He comes back to God and he says, I, I bring up my confession. I am sorry. I am changing. I am repenting. Why? Because literally he has come under such pain, he has changed his way. And so this may be happening in Psalm 6. But we do know this. 
that that's a principle woven into the Scriptures. Paul actually picks it up. I just want you to see this. I just want you to see this isn't just like a book of Psalms thing, uh, a theme here. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, writes this. Check this out. He writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is after, by the way, he has written a very painful letter. It's a letter that really upset these Christians. And in, in talking about that painful letter, he writes this. We're going to read it out of the New Living Translation, which really gets to the sense of what Paul's saying. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Uh, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just because you feel sorry doesn't mean anything's going to change. I think we all have examples of that in our life. Either your own life or the life of others in your life, where, where they come up against the consequence and all of a sudden they feel sorry, but then they hit that mountaintop again and it's like nothing ever passed. But godly sorrow, Godly sorrow that gets to the heart will change a person. And that's, that's the goal. To be confronted with our sin, our rebellion, and then have such great pain that it leads us back to life. That's the goal. That's the goal here. Now, here's the thing about sin and suffering. It's not always that, that, that the suffering is a natural consequence of sin. Sometimes. God steps in as our good father and will actually discipline his children. Now, I want to be real careful here because it's, there's, this, there's, this, um, there's this risk here of acting like God is some tyrant up in the sky who just wields thunderbolts to anyone that makes them mad. Really quite arbitrarily. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a good father who sees a wayward child and brings discipline so that sorrow will come into their life and they will come back. In repentance. That's what we're talking about. It's just timely that this is on Father's Day. The Hebrew writer, the Hebrew writer, the writer of the letter to the he, uh, to the Hebrews, um, it is a letter seeped in the Old Testament, like it just bleeds the Old Testament. Interestingly, that in the Old Testament this idea comes out over and over, and then in that letter, the Hebrew writer says this about the father's discipline. Here's what the Hebrew writer writes: Chapter twelve, verse seven through twelve. Just an excerpt passage. The Hebrew writer says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, then they're not legitimate. Now I'm going to have to say that again for the earthly context. I have one of my children right here in this room. just want to say it again. And if you are a teenager and your parent is with you, you need to hear this again too. This Hebrew writer just said, if a parent doesn't discipline, they don't love you. They're not legitimate. So the next time you get a punishment, that's a legit parent. Okay, let's go on. Okay. I'm just, I'm just quoting Bible, y'all. If you've got a problem with what I just said, you've got a problem with what God said. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, then, you're not, then, then you are not legitimate. Sorry, I misquoted it. Like, you're not legitimate. Okay. Sorry been stronger if I would have got it right. All right. Then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. It produces a righteous, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those that have been trained by it. 
So it's not just that, that David's sin has its own natural consequence. It is that David also is being disciplined by his Father in heaven. And that has brought him to a place of sorrow. At least that's an option in Psalm 6. We know it's happening in Psalm 32 and 38. But there's something else that could be possible in Psalm 6. It's also possible in Psalm 6 that David is suffering from a physical ailment, some type of chronic pain, maybe a disease that has entered his life and he's just begging God to be delivered from. Because what we know in the passage is, is David is praying over and over, so much so he's crying in his bed night after night, day and night crying, God, take this from me. So some commentators believe this isn't sin here in Psalm 6, but it actually is chronic pain. It's some type of disease, some physical ailment, something that is rattling his body, just ravishing it. He's in, he literally is in pain. I feel like some of us could relate to that at times, right? Notice how he prays. So he just begs God, take this, take this. Here it is. We'll just return back to Psalm 6, verse 3 and 4. See them then in this context. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. So there are some that believe Psalm 6 is a prayer for delivery. A prayer uh, that David has been praying for many, many days, maybe weeks, maybe months. God, take this from me. And he prays it with a lot of honesty. I'm struggling. My soul is in anguish. I'm really upset. Would you please deliver me? There's another option. There's another option. Kind of our last option. The one thing we haven't talked about in the psalm, and that is David's enemies. David's enemies are all over this psalm. And so it may be that maybe it's not a sin here in this psalm. Maybe it's not even uh, some type of chronic pain or disease. It just may be his enemies. That is, there have been people who have come against him. And who of us have not had people come against us at some point in our lives? Notice this, verse 7, the first part of verse 8, and verse 10. Notice, notice how the enemies show up here. My eyes grew weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. Away from me, all who do evil. And it ends the psalm with, all my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Each one of those references deals with someone in his life that has brought great pain. Now, we don't know exactly then how the pain has been brought. We just don't know. I mean, how did they bring the pain? Let me give you some options. So let me just kind of take this and summarize those three options from sin to some type of uh, chronic pain, physical ailment to his enemies. Let's just take all three and understand how maybe the enemies could be part of this larger suffering David is struggling with. So let's say it this way. Whatever the cause of David's suffering, it appears that his enemies are trying to capitalize on his suffering. So if it is his sin, they're mocking him. They're mocking him. It's an easy target. If it's sickness of some sort, then they're saying God has rejected him. And here we would remember Job. If you remember the story of Job, his friends come along, uh, come, come alongside Job as he suffers and basically say, short story, you it's your fault you're suffering. God's doing this to you because he's rejected you. And if it's his enemies, if it is his enemies that are the, that the heart of his suffering, then they're trying to make his pain worse. 
for whatever reason David's suffering, he's suffering. So much so that he's crying day and night. Remember, this is David, the David who cut off the head of Goliath. This is warrior David who's crying. Just want to make a quick note. It's okay if men cry. Let's move on. Um, So, the thing about all those, no matter what he is suffering, he's going to land the prayer near the end with with, uh, what we might call a vote of confidence. Notice how he says it. Let's put these verses up. The end of verse 8 and verse 9. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. No matter what else is happening in his life, from be it his own sin where he believes God has, has completely rejected him because of his sin, be it a sickness, a chronic pain where he thinks God is punishing him for some reason, that God's wrath is somehow on him and causing him great physical pain, or it be his enemies who God for some reason isn't removing in his life. Whatever it is, David comes right near the end of this prayer and says, but I know God's going to answer me. I know God's not leaving me. And I love that because you get in the midst, when you're in the middle of suffering, you don't think God's anywhere around. But David knows, even in his suffering, even when his bones fail, God hadn't left. God will hear his prayer. Now the question that we want to kind of end our study of the passage on is where does David get the right to say God won't leave him? Where does he get that confidence? Where is that coming from? Is it because David is a man after God's own heart? Is it because David, God anointed David? Is it because David is so holy in, in some way? Somehow he has some special relationship with God? Is it because of David's righteousness? Is it because of David's love that he knows God will never leave him? Is that where this is coming from? He's got to have a reason for getting near the end of this prayer where he has just spilled out so much emotion. There's got to be a reason he comes to the end and says, I know God will answer. Where is he getting that from? It's coming from God's love. That's where it's coming from. Right in the middle, he gave us a clue of where confidence is coming from. Check out verse 4. Just one more time. I have no idea where that came from. Okay. Um, (laughs) Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me. And why have you saved me? Because of your unfailing love. It's not that David brought some great life, some perfect life to God, and God would hear his prayer. It's not because he worded some some perfect petition where all the words were put together in just the right way, and now God will hear. It's because of God's love, God's love alone. God initiated this. God will keep it secure. That's what's happening here. And for the Christian, for the Christian, that same thing holds true. It was not because of any righteousness you and I held that we found salvation. It's not like you brought all of your holy life to God and he said, man, man, look at that person. That person's super holy. We better let them into heaven. No, what happened is that God, in his immense love, sent his son to deal with human rebellion. He went to the cross and he died for the sin of the world. And then, and then, all that sin in that moment, all that rebellion was put on Christ. We might say it was imputed to Christ. Now, to the world, this is just foolishness. This just doesn't make any sense. But in the reality of the kingdom of God, 
All of our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. And it was paid for. It was canceled. And then when anyone comes to Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone, when we come to Christ, all that righteousness in Christ gets put on us. It is imputed to us. So why does God not give up on us? Not because of your righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ. My righteousness will fail. By six tonight, it will fail. Guaranteed. It's it's already failed. Christ's righteousness has not, is not, and will never fail. You could take that to the bank every day of the week. And so, and so we we got to just put right in front of our eyes, right before we move into application, that, that wonderful scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul makes this so clear. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not your righteousness, it is God's. And because of that, you can be sure no matter what you're going through, God is not going to give up on you. He just won't. All right. That's the gospel right there in Psalm 6. It's right there in Psalm 6. All right, let's make some application. I got three things I want to I want to I want to deal with, okay? We'll do them fairly quickly. First point of application, God still disciplines his children. Now, I want to be real careful here. Your suffering, if you are suffering, and I imagine everyone's got some suffering. If you're suffering, we want to be real careful not to say just to go to, God must be disciplining me, something's wrong in my life, I've done something wrong, and God is mad with me. That's typically where our mind wants to go, okay? But in throwing out the baby, we don't want to throw out the bathwater. We don't want to do that. Here's why. Because sometimes, sometimes, God is going to cause suffering in your life so that He gets your attention. So I want to be real clear. If you are suffering... We, want to, we don't want to go to a place where we say, God's mad, God's done with me. We don't want to go there. But we also don't want to reject the idea that sometimes God puts suffering in our life so that it draws us to Him because it's the only way we can get His attention. C.S. Lewis we talked about this um, by saying uh, that God will speak to us, speaks to us with a megaphone in our pain. Pain has a way of getting your attention. And so just, I just want us to be aware that sometimes pain is caused by God to draw us. To draw us. If we as human parents do it, why would we think God would not with His children? So what, I want, what I'm trying to do here in this first application point is if you are suffering, let's just, let's just acknowledge that God might be trying to get your attention. Okay? Which means there might be something you have to change in your life. This isn't just a matter of you walk out saying, man, i got to do better. Man, I feel sorry. And then you go right back to the vomit. No. What needs to happen for true repentance to take place? You literally turn around and stop doing what you're doing. So just, just acknowledge God is still in the business of disciplining His children. This has not gone away. I also want to be careful. Say it one more time. For example, if you have cancer... We want to be careful not to go, ah, cancer, what is God trying to get my attention for? Like, this is not a formula that you just, that you can just place on every person. It's going to be specific to you, and God will work with you. But we have to acknowledge God still disciplines His children. 
Second application point is this. Prayer is not a magic formula, and God is not a genie. Why do I say that? I have this sense among lots of people, even myself, that if I'll just pray the right way, or if I'll pray at this time, or if I, if I pray this many times, well, then God will answer my prayer. God will answer my prayer. There is not a magic formula to make God do things. And God is not a genie where if you go to Him with the right prayer, He'll do what you say. Because what Psalm 6 teaches us, and so many Psalms are going to teach us this, is sometimes you weep night and day and God still not, does not answer you the way you want Him to answer. Just a reminder, check out this verse from Psalm 6. Remember there in verse 3, He cried out, How long, Lord, how long? You ever prayed that? I imagine all of us at some point have prayed that. Hey God, when are you going to do something? Please do something. David, David, a man after God's own heart, a man anointed by God to be king of Israel, and here's a guy who suffered to the point of his bones hurting and, and, and covering his couch with tears, and God still didn't give him what he was asking for. And may we not forget, Jesus Himself poured tears, poured tears in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, if, if this cup could pass before me, please let it. But your will be done. Your will be done. God does, does not answer every prayer that we wanted, the way we wanted. That doesn't mean He's not loving. He's immensely good. And you can be sure, even if your prayer goes unanswered in the way you want it answered, you can be sure of this if you're a Christian. It's right here. Romans 8.28, you can hold on to it for the rest of your life. And we know that in all things, the word in the Greek means all, just in case you were wondering, it actually means all things. God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. No matter your suffering, be it your sin, be it people who come against you, be it your own sickness, God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is holding on, and it will all be worked to good for His glory. Last point, last application point is this. Come to Christ with every burden. Nothing is off limits. Now, I've got to read you this one passage real quick, okay? It's, it's become one of my favorites lately. I've shared it with many people. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Sometimes we think that when we're struggling, sometimes when we think we're struggling, we think that God has somehow left us. Or we're supposed to be strong enough and we're supposed to handle it on our own. There's this misconception that God will only give you what you can handle. That's not in the Bible. Actually, God says, God will often give you more than you can handle so that you come to Him because He can handle it. It's Paul who wrote, not on the slide, it's not on the slide, it is Paul who wrote, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Where's that strength coming from? Or what I love in the Hebrew writer, why I love this passage, is it says, in your need, you go to God. So often we think, so often we think it's when we're in need, it's when we're suffering and we're not strong that we're, somehow God doesn't want to see us. 
No, it is when we are the most in need, God is drawing close. And you might say, well, I, don't, I can't say to God all the things that I'm actually feeling. Where are you getting that idea? Take God all of it. Now I'm going to say something, and if you disagree with me, you come tell me you disagree, and then we're going to have a wonderful discussion around the Bible. And I'm the pastor, so I'm going to win. Um, so, <laughs> joking, not really. All right, so, um, <laughs> so, no, listen, listen. Sometimes people think that when they talk to God, they can't use everyday language. Sometimes there are words in the English language that grab at emotions better than any others. You can take those God, words to God. You take them. You take those words to God. I'm talking about curse words. Take them to God. If you have such deep emotion, you need to do a little cussing, then you go do a little cussing. You know who can handle cussing? God can handle cussing. You know who you shouldn't be cussing at? Everybody else. But if you need to express emotion, you take that to God. Now, why do I say this? Is it to be provocative? Not at all. I find, I find just talking to ordinary people, they think for some reason that they talk this way over here and they express emotions over here this way, but when they get with God, they have to... They to just tidy up. they got to tidy everything up. Do we think we're tricking God when we're over here? We just think that somehow God doesn't see this? No. You take it all to God. Now, I don't mean that we become flippant with God. I'm dealing with those deep-seated sufferings. You take it all to God. And He will draw near. My goal here, the reason I bring all this up, is because I want it to be very clear. You can take every part of you to God. Where God has a problem is when you step away from Him, you reject Him, you leave Him, you try to do it on your own, and it's all about you. You can take it all to God. Now, if any of those curse words are in bad faith, I trust God will deal with you. And He will deal with you appropriately. But take it all to God. And the reason I talk about this thing that I think you might get upset with me about is because it's this area that everyone thinks God can't handle. No, God can handle it. Make sure you take it to Him. Take all of it. So if you're dealing with cancer, if you're dealing with family, uh, internal family strife, if you're dealing with the breakup of a relationship of an adult child and you are just, you are at your wit's end and you're struggling, you don't know what to do and you don't think God wants to hear it. No, God wants to hear it. You keep taking it to God. Talk to Him as honest as you can talk. And why do I bring up the words you use? Because sometimes, if we're being honest, those are the words you want to use. So use them. And let God deal with your heart. And draw you close to the throne of grace. Okay. Okay. Now listen, if you've got a problem with what I just said, I don't know what to do with you. I know. George is going to have a talk with me later. I see it right there. I see it right there. I quote Biden last week, talking about cuss words this week. I don't, Terry, you may need to preach next week again. I, I don't know. Here's the, here's the next step. Here's the next step. Would you pray honestly this week? Pray honestly this week. When you're mad, sad, happy, or hurting. You know, we have four kids at home, and I'm a dad. That's not always easy. And we have two teenagers. Sometimes the three-year-old is infinitely easier 
than the 16-year-old. And so there are these moments in parenting where you get so angry. And I have found myself, in light of Psalm 6 and some of these other passages, in these moments just keeping my mouth shut and then praying to God a very honest prayer about my child. And then asking for God, asking God for help. And I'm going to tell you why that's hard for me. Because I like to think that being a parent, I've got it all together. And so I know how to handle these kids. And I know what punishments they need. And I'm going to make sure to, I'm going to, make sure to do it right. But I am disabused of that arrogance. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what And so I'm just having some pretty honest prayers with God. God, and here's my prayer. And so I need help because I literally don't know what to do. And I'm mad, and I'm sad, and I'm, and I'm a lot of things. And so I'm just talking to God about it. And He's given some wisdom. And they're wisdom for that moment. Because sometimes I try to take that wisdom and apply it forever and ever, and it doesn't work, like two days later. But in that moment, He's helping me. So what I'm saying is just pray honestly. I'm trying to get us to see, you don't got to be perfect to go to God. Take it all to Him. The other option is you think you've got it all together. And at some point, reality will teach you, you don't. Let's pray. God, we got a lot of emotion in this room, I'm sure. We've got anger. We've got confusion. Frustration. I'm sure there's joy. There's happiness. And so we bring it all to you. But particularly if we're suffering. You have been suffering for a very long time. How long will you wait? But we know that it is because of your unfailing love you do not let go. And you actually have our good for us. And you'll turn all things to good and then it will be for your glory, not ours. We need no fame. You get it all. So help us. Help us to acknowledge you in our celebrations and help us to trust you in our pain. And wherever there is sin we've repented of, Holy Spirit, give us the strength in that too. We come to you honestly. And I pray us as a people, individually this week, we'll pray to you honestly. Not trying to be prim and proper or sugarcoat our prayers, but to come to you with our honesty. And then you, because of your unfailing love, the righteousness of Christ, you would change us. So we pray that. We pray that in the spirit of Psalm 6. And we thank you for it. All in the name of him who is our Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ. Amen.